I want to share with you for just a few moments, and I do realize what time it is, so I had to prepare extra long for this message this morning. No, I mean that. It takes me more preparation to preach short than it does to preach long. I want to continue with the series that we started in um, uh, Matthew chapter 16 on the keys of the kingdom of God. Jesus says to his disciples in response to their question, answering their question about who he is, Peter responds, If thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus says, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, that whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I want you to notice the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are usually spoken of in, in the New Testament inter, in uh, interchangeable terms. There are a couple of times where the Bible talks about the kingdom of heaven, where it's talking about things after this age, but those are not scriptures we're going to be dealing with, so... We won't concern ourselves with that. But Jesus said that I'll give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, he's saying, I'll make you masters of the principles that govern the kingdom of God. Masters of the principles. God wants us to be masters of the principles that cover the kingdom of God. Now, I'm, I'm guilty of thinking the kingdom of God for many, many years, most of my adult life. I always looked at the phrase the kingdom of God as being kind of a generic term. That just means stuff about God. But he's talking about something specifically. And notice that he says that being a master of the principles that cover and govern the kingdom of God will enable you to have authority here on the earth. Whatever you bind on the earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on the earth shall be loosed in heaven. One of the most interesting parts about that uh, saying to me is that everything starts here on the earth doesn't start with God in heaven most Christians are looking for things to start in heaven Jesus said that the principles that govern the kingdom of God will cause you to determine what things will happen here on the earth and heaven will back you up now in Matthew chapter 6 Jesus is teaching teaching his disciples to pray what is known as the Lord's prayer verse 9 he said after this manner pray ye our father which art in heaven hallowed be thy name then the first thing he says concerning that prayer, after he talks about God's holiness, the first thing he says concerning that prayer in Matthew 6.10 is, Thy kingdom come. Well, he's got to be talking about the kingdom of God, doesn't he? At that point in time, the kingdom of God has not come. Now it has. The kingdom of God was entered into when we were made able to be born again because of the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus. But again, what does that mean? What does the kingdom of God mean? If it's just general stuff about God, then how are we going to know specifically about what we're supposed to know and what we're supposed to be masters of? I believe Jesus gave us a definition of the kingdom of God in Matthew 6.10. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is where the things are that God wills in heaven are done here on the earth. Now, the Holy Spirit brought something to my thinking, oh, within the last couple of months, I guess, that I never had considered. And that is this. He said this specifically to me. In the 35 years that I've been ministering to people, never once in those 35 years has anybody ever come up to me and asked me about the will of God in heaven. 
Never. Everybody knows what the will of God is in heaven. Everybody knows that. Now, I'm not so sure if that's because the church has done such a good job in teaching people about what what the will of God is in heaven or if it's just a matter of the devil doesn't bother you about the will of God in heaven. But since we know that the God never changes, God said of himself, I am God, I change not. We know that there's no variableness in him, neither shadow of turning. What would make us or anyone think that God would be different based on where we're located? Another way to ask that question is why would God be different because we're here on the earth than the way that we know he is in heaven? That's just foolish thinking. Yet it's predominantly the thinking of the church. Now, in Mark chapter 4, turn with me over to Mark chapter 4. Jesus gives the disciples the secret, what he calls the secret to the kingdom of God. He speaks to them in a parable. It's the parable of the sower sowing the word. Um, well, I better read it. I was going to, for the sake of time, I was just going to refer to it. But beginning in verse 3, Mark chapter 4, verse 3, Jesus said, Hearken, behold, there went out a sower to sow. And it came to pass as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and some, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And some fell on stony ground where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. And others fell, other seed fell on good ground and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased and brought forth some thirty and some sixty and some a hundred. Now notice verse 9. And he said unto them, He that has ears to hear, let him hear. The disciples came to him privately and asked him the, the, uh, the meaning of these things, the meaning of this parable. Notice in verse 11, And he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery. This word mystery is translated secret in most other translations. Unto you is given to know the mystery or the secret of the kingdom of God. Now, if the kingdom of God is defined as Jesus told us, where the will of God is done in the earth like it is in heaven. He's saying there's a secret to that. Well, I believe the secret must, be, must have some relation to the mastery of the principles that govern the kingdom of God. I believe it's Jesus saying the same thing in two different ways. So he says to his disciples, unto you it's given to know the mystery or the secret of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without... All these things are done in parables that seeing they may see and not perceive and hearing they may hear and not understand lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. So it goes back to what Jesus said in verse 9. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. What does that mean? He can't be talking about physical ears because everybody in the crowd had physical ears. What does he mean? He that has ears to hear, let him hear. He's talking about hearing spiritually. Hearing on the inside. But that way of saying it really doesn't do a whole lot for us let's put it in terms that we understand would hearing on the inside or hearing with your spirit 
not also be considered having an open heart. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Would we not understand that that would, that would mean in terms that we are more familiar with? He that has an open heart, let him receive. Now notice what Jesus said about the Jews. He said, I'm speaking to you in parables so that those who have open hearts can receive. But those that are, have closed their hearts will just hear the words, but it won't make any sense to them. If that's the case, then the first secret to the kingdom of God, the first secret of the first step to mastering the principles that govern the kingdom of God, that provides authority to bind and loose here on the earth, comes down to having an open heart. Now, the parable, Jesus explains to those who are open-hearted, Verse 13, and he said unto them, Know ye not this parable? And how then will you know all parables? The sower soweth the word. And these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word which was sown in their hearts. Now notice he's talking about, and everything about this is related to having an open heart. He says, if you don't know this parable, if you're not open-hearted to this one, to receive the truth and the principles behind this parable, you're not going to understand any of them. We might say that Mark chapter 4 is parables 101. It's the foundation for everything else he's going to say. Now notice what he says. He says that where the word is sown in those that are considered to be or identified as the wayside, Satan comes immediately to steal away the word that was sown in their hearts. What does that mean? That means that the devil works in some, hopefully this isn't you and me, but in some, he works so that they immediately reject the word, immediately reject what the word of God says for us either to do or what belongs to us because of the work of Jesus, because of wrong thinking. For example, if the word of God is sown concerning healing, then the, the devil comes immediately with the thought, with the idea. Well, you know that can't be true. Healing can't be for everybody because you know Christians that have died sick. Or you know what the doctors told you about your condition. And so the idea is rejected instantly. Even though what you've heard from the word of God is true. In other words, it's wrong thinking that causes closed hearts. That has to be true, does it not? Some people never even get to the point where they consider the truth. They may hear the good news of the word, good news of what Jesus has provided for us, and they may think, well, that can't be true because Dr. Reverend so-and-so said that God wants us to suffer here on the earth. He wants to teach us something through tests and trials and afflictions and difficulties and sickness and whatever the case might be. So it can't be possible that God wants the same thing for you here on the earth that he wants for you in heaven. Because heaven's considered to be the eternal reward. And the more junk you put up with down here on the earth, the bigger your reward when you get to heaven. The only problem is that's not what the Bible says. I know it's a a big idea in the church. 
That's not what the Bible says. So the first thing that we need to recognize about the way the devil operates, and folks, I got to tell you, the more I think on this, the more I study on this, the more I meditate on this, I don't think the devil's got you identified as a certain type of ground. I think the devil operates the same way with everybody in every case. So that whenever you hear the word, no matter how long you've been walking in it, no matter what results you've gotten from the word, how you've operated in faith for how long or whatever, I think the first time we hear the word, the devil operates the same with us as with somebody that's never heard the word before. And that is he comes instantly to throw a thought of doubt in your mind as to why this can't be true. I hear Brother Hagin say things like, even the greatest saint of God has had doubts in his heart or doubts in his mind while he receives the result of faith in his heart. But somehow or another, that, that didn't register with me. I believed it to be true. But somehow or another, it didn't register with me. I got to thinking that, that someday I'd mature and, and graduate in the things of God to the point where doubt wouldn't be an issue. But as long as there's a devil, there's going to be doubt that comes to your mind. And I think the devil brings the doubt and then blames you for doubting when it's his thoughts. Makes you think, well, you're not as spiritually mature as you thought you were because you just doubted. Well, I didn't doubt. I just listened to you, idiot. (laughs) I didn't act on it. I didn't receive it. It's your thoughts. You're the one that was talking. But very seldom do we respond that way, even though that would be true. Jesus then speaks of the second type of ground, which I think is the second line of defense that the devil uses, the second line of attack that the devil uses against people. Where it says um, in verse 16, And these are they likewise, which are sown on stony ground, who, when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness. In other words, they overcome the first line of defense, the first line of doubt, the first attack of doubt about why this can't be true. They reason. Well, the word says it. The Bible is God speaking to us, so it has to be true. So now he has to step up the attack. These are they likewise which are sown on stony ground, who when they have heard the word immediately receive it with gladness and have no root. The word root literally means moisture. They don't continue the water of the word. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. He said, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gives the increase. Well, Apollos preached the same thing that Paul taught, or I should say it this way. Apollos taught the same thing that Paul preached. The first time they heard it was from Paul, so it was planting. Second time, the the times after that, that they heard it from Apollos, teaching the same truth was watering. So speaking the word must be watering the word. So it means that they don't continue in it. They hear it once, but that's it. They don't continue in it. They have no root in themselves and so endure before a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. And notice the word affliction. The word affliction literally means pressure. The word persecution, we understand that as people speaking against us. But what do we care about people speaking against us? Well, it hurts. 
It hurts our feelings. So the next line of, def- of attack that the devil uses is pressure and pain. Now, what's the purpose? The whole purpose is for the devil, through whatever means of attack he has to use, to get you to turn loose of the word of God that you hear preached. Or to make you closed-hearted to the truth that you heard. Now, let me give you an example of this. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but I'm going to look with it, with uh, uh, to Matthew chapter 11. Let me show you an example of this. Jesus is with his disciples. Matthew 11 verse 2, it says, Now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Now please remember that John the Baptist is the one that declared publicly when Jesus came to him, behold the Lamb of the world, which takes, behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. He was sure at that point. Why is he unsure at this point? Well, he's in prison. Things are tough. Affliction means test, trial, and, and trouble. The pressure that comes from those circumstances. So notice John is is tempted. To change his thinking because of the pressure. So he says are you the one that should come or do we look for another? And Jesus answered them and said. Go and show John again those things which you do hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached unto them. Notice verse 6. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Remember what it says over in Mark chapter 4? It says, when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they're offended. What does Jesus mean when he says, blessed is he that is not offended in me? He's saying to John, don't close your heart, John. I know you're in a tough place. But don't let the trouble and the pressure that the trouble you're in has caused turn you away from what you know to be true. John knew at the first who Jesus was. He was real sure about it. He's saying, don't change your position because of pressure. We need to realize, folks, that pressure is designed by the enemy for one and only one purpose. That's to make you turn loose of the truth of the word. I can't tell you how many people have come and said something to the effect of Pastor Mike I didn't have this much trouble before I started believing God well duh what do you think the trouble came for because you're believing God notice verse 18 and these are they which are sown among thorns such as hear the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lust of other things lust just simply means desires Desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. The word choke means to strangle completely or literally to drown. Now, certainly we could define or separate, differentiate between the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lust of other things. But quite honestly, I think it might be better for us to just group them together. 
Because literally what it's talking about is other stuff. Worldly stuff. The cares of this world. The deceitfulness of riches. And the lusts of other things. The deceitfulness of riches is maybe the easiest one to define. The deceitfulness of riches can easily be defined as the idea that money will solve all your problems. Money never solves all your problems. Now, there's one problem that money is the only answer for, and that's not having enough money. But remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12. He's talking about material things. He says, look at the birds of the air. God feeds them. They don't work hard. They're not worried about things. They just fly through the air and chirp all day. He said, look at the flowers of the field. They don't work to look pretty or to have enough. But nothing's more beautiful than them. And he said, in the same way, in the same measure, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things, material things, shall be added unto you. Now, that's Luke chapter 12 and verse 31. He goes on in verse 32 and says something that's significant to our discussion. He says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So the kingdom of God, where the will of God is done in the earth like it is in heaven, includes material possessions. Now, the deceitfulness of riches is the idea that you've got to chase the stuff to get the stuff. When the reality is the mastery of the principles that govern the kingdom of God is that the stuff will come to you if you put the word of God first place in your life. Well, there can't be anything wrong with the stuff. If there's something wrong with the stuff, it'd be wrong with God giving you the stuff. So the fault is not in the stuff. The only question is, the only issue is, what are you pursuing? God or the stuff? Well, what about the cares of this world? One translation, or well, not one, many translations actually, translate the cares of this world as being the needs of this world. The needs of this world. Well, the stuff you need is stuff you need. Can't be anything wrong with the stuff you need because you need it. It's not just talking about stuff you want. It's not just talking about evil desires. It's talking about stuff that you really have a genuine need for. I've been pastoring the church for over 30 years, and I've had a chance to see people grow and develop, families grow and develop. And I've seen dozens of cases where the devil uses kids against the parents. Now, you may think I'm talking about rebellious children that turn away from God and the pain and suffering that it brings to the parents, and I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about where the devil uses kids' activities, where there's dance class, karate lessons, or sports, or even academic endeavors to take the place of the word in that family life. Somebody told me one time, it's been some years ago, they said, you know, Pastor Mike, when I was in Bible school, I was studying the word every day. But now I've got kids. 
Well, that was God's intent for the kids. God sitting in heaven saying, I'm going to bless these people with children so that they won't have any time for me. That doesn't make sense, does it? It's easy to get caught up in the things that our kids are doing. I've seen parents start agonizing when their kids are preschool ages about what good colleges they're going to be able to get into. Now, somebody told me one time and along this line, they said, now, I'd said something along these lines or they felt under conviction about something. And so they had to straighten it out with me, of course. I'd like to have her laugh every day, (laughs) every service anyway. So they said, uh, you know, Pastor Mike, he said, I don't want you to think that we're taken away from God or the place of God in our lives. But our kids are involved in sports right now, and so we're just committing ourselves to these things for a period of time. Well, that may be all well and good, but your kids don't know that. Your kids just know that you're picking activities and sports over him. Him meaning God. And very rarely do I ever see when the sports season is over that things go back to the way they were before. Now, I'm not throwing rocks at anybody, folks. I don't have anybody in mind, and there's nobody here I'm trying to straighten out. I'm just telling you this is the way the devil works against you. The cares of this world. How many of you care about politics right now? Man, we've got an election season on steroids, don't we? Well, it's easy to get so politically minded you lose your spiritual worth. Now, you can look at that in a couple of different ways. Some people are so involved in politics right now that God's taking a back seat. But some people are so politically minded that they're closed-hearted to the truth of the word. Both would be a work of the devil. Something we need to guard against. Because the devil is trying actively to choke out or literally to drown out the word of God in your life. And it's not evil stuff that he uses primarily against the church. It's good things that he distracts you with. You know the difference between things that are evil and things that are not. You know to resist evil. But how many of us know to resist the good things that this world has to offer because they made me distractions? And these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it and bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. What makes the difference? What makes the difference in 30, 60, and 100 fold? The attention you give to the word. See, some people overcome the first line of Satan's defense and even the second line of Satan's defense, the the pressure and the pain, but they get distracted. Somebody told me once uh, uh, here recently, they said, you know, Pastor Mike, a light has come on for me. I'm speaking the word and confessing the word like I never have before. Well, I rejoice in that. 
But I want to analyze that too. They've loved God and walked with God and been in church all of their adult lives. What kept them from seeing it before? Well, it wasn't purposeful. They were committed to God as much as they knew how to be. Well, what puts us in a position like that? And we've all been there. What creates that kind of situation? Distraction. Distraction. Now look with me over to 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'm beginning to finish. You know what that means? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. It said, this know also that in the last days. Anybody wonder about us being in the last days? Man, if you hadn't figured that out, you really have blinders on. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. My favorite definition of perilous times is strength-reducing times. Now, how is the devil going to try to reduce your strength? Jesus just told us. He told us in the parable of the sower, so in the word. Through distraction, through pressure and pain. Through speaking doubts to our mind. In the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. Without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce despisers of those that are good. Traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. The one that gets me more than anything else. I mean, you expect all those things to happen in the world and among the unsaved. But the one that gets me more than any of them is verse 5. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Now, let me ask you a question. Is Paul saying by the Holy Ghost that a sign of the end will be that the church seems to have a form of, uh, I'm sorry, that the unsaved seem to have a form of ungodliness? I've messed that up. Let me say that again. Is Paul saying about the unsaved that they'll have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof? I believe he's talking about the church. Who cares whether the world seems to be godly we can tell pretty quick on that. It's real easy to tell in the political circles where people are either claiming to be a Christian or the real thing. All you have to do is identify their definition of Christianity. If it doesn't involve Jesus, it's not the real thing. We've had experience with that for the last eight years, huh? But notice what he says, and if he is talking about the church, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. One of the things that Matthew 24 talks about when Jesus is asked by his disciples about the end time events, Jesus first says, take heed that no man deceive you. First thing he mentions before he talks about famines and earthquakes and race riots and all the other things. First thing he mentions is deception. First thing, now how does the devil going to deceive the church? 
Well, he only has certain tools to use. Those are, can be identified as wayside tools, stony ground tools, pressure and pain, or thorny ground tools, cares of this world. That's all he's got. So if he is talking about the church, and I think he has to be, notice what he says the condition of much of the church will be. They'll play church, but they'll deny the power thereof. Does the Bible not say that the word of God is the power of God? So a church without power would have to be a church without the word by simple definition, would it not? So in the last days, Paul is saying that the church will look like they're doing the right things. But they'll be distracted or turned away from the word. Which is the devil's whole goal in the first place. To turn you away from the word. To turn you away from the word. I think we need to examine our lives folks. See what is distracting us and what's taking the place of where the word of God should be. I want to finish with this scripture. Psalm 107. Some might say, well, I see myself in this, Pastor Mike. What am I to do? Or maybe they'd say it's too late for me because I've already messed up. There's hope for us. Psalm 107, verse 17, it says, Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, are afflicted. Most of our trouble is self-imposed. Well, not me, Pastor Mike. I'm, I'm under genuine attack of the devil. Well, that may be the case. But a lot of times we're under genuine attack of the devil because we didn't keep the word in the, first, in the right place in our lives to begin with. Regardless, fools because of their transgressions and their iniquity are afflicted. Their soul abhorreth all manner of meat. That would have to mean the word of God. That's the only spiritual food there is or food for the soul that there is. Their soul abhorreth all manner of meat, and they draw near unto the gates of death. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he saves them out of their distresses. Thank God he does. Now, how is he going to save you from all your distresses? See, a lot of people want to quit reading right there. I had somebody come to me at healing school a couple of weeks ago. We're late for the service. They got in about the last two minutes of the service. Came up and told me about all the problems they're having physically and wanted me to pray for them. So I talked to him about the word. You never saw somebody get so mad in your life. They didn't want to hear any of that. They wanted me to pray. Well, I'm at a critical point, Pastor Mike. I need the Lord to deliver me. Well, thank God there's a promise. At the point of death, then they cry unto the Lord. And he saves them from their distresses. Now let's interpret this the way that a lot of people want it to be. Then they cry unto the Lord in there and he saves them from their distresses by violating all the rules of the principles of the kingdom of God and just saves them and delivers them because he likes them so much. <laughs> That's the way most people want it, isn't it? 
Notice it tells you how he saves you from your distresses. He sent his word and healed them. See, folks, God's not going to change the principles that govern the kingdom of God just because you pray. The principles of the kingdom of God are going to be the same before you pray, while you're praying, and when you're done praying. And those principles that govern the kingdom of God are to speak the word and don't let anything distract you from it. Then they cry unto the Lord and he delivers them from their distresses. He sent his word and healed them. He sent his word and healed them. It's always the word, folks. It's always the word. And whatever you allow to distract you in life will rob you of the blessings of God. You need to realize that the devil will limit the will of God being done in your life here on the earth by the degree or the measure of the distractions he can get you into or pull you away by. Speak the word. When doubts come to your mind, speak the word. When afflictions and troubles come, speak the word. When you're persecuted for speaking the word, speak the word. (laughs) When the cares of this life start to pile up, speak the word. When it looks like you don't have enough money, speak the word. When you see other things that are good to be desired in this life, speak the word. If you do that, if Jesus told us the truth, then it's impossible for him to lie. There's nothing the devil can do to keep the will of God from being yours here on this earth, just like it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for revealing to us the principles that govern the kingdom of God. We commit unto you, Father, that we will speak the word in every circumstance and in every situation. We will not be those of whom it is spoken that they have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. We shall, in fact, be bold to declare the power of God is the word of God itself. Thank you, Father, that heaven and earth shall pass away, but your word will never fail. It will never fade out. It will never come to an end. Thank you, Father, that your word is truth. And it shall change physical facts every time. Lord, we thank you once again for opening the eyes of our understanding. Show us the things that the enemy is using against us. Reveal to us the things that we're being distracted by. So that we can set aside those distractions. And put your word in its proper place in our lives. In Jesus' precious name. If you can agree with that prayer, say amen. 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 Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Don't forget this kids' party tonight is at 6 and healing school is at 6 as well. John and Laura will be back with us and John will be ministering. Oh, yeah, and don't forget they'll be at the back at the table with the cards for you to, to see, talk to you. Again, I encourage you to be partners with them in what they're doing. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.